Hey guys, and welcome back. This is Unknown Friends, and I am your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wayne Productions. Thank you so much for joining me today for episode 19 of the podcast's third season, which has been a season full of trilogies. We have covered six trilogies so far this year in quite a range of genres, historical fiction, science fiction, fantasy, uh, and even cornerstone works of Western literature like uh, Dante's Divine Comedy. Well, today we're starting a new trilogy, or uh, new to the podcast, that is, but actually the oldest piece of literature we have yet discussed on Unknown Friends in any of our three seasons so far. Today we'll be launching our three-episode discussion of The Oresteia, a dramatic trilogy written by the ancient Greek tragedian Aeschylus. So the Oresteia is just shy of being 2,500 years old. Aeschylus lived in the 6th and 5th centuries BC, and he wrote his Oresteia trilogy, and it was first performed in 458 BC, exactly 2,480 years ago. Now, let me frame our discussion with a little context by talking about Aeschylus for a few minutes, uh, who he was, what he did, what he wrote, and more generally, I think it'll be helpful if we briefly discuss Greek tragic drama and how it developed. So the playwright Aeschylus was born in Greece in roughly 525 BC, in the region of Attica, in a small town slightly northwest of Athens. He was a poet and playwright his whole life. Uh, his tragic dramas were already being performed when he was in his 20s. However, he also did military service multiple times, because unfortunately for him, he lived right in the middle of the Persian Wars, which were a big deal in ancient Greek history. The Persian Wars were a 50-year series of conflicts between the Greeks and the Persians from about 500 to 450 BC. So essentially, they lasted the span of Aeschylus' adult life. The biggest battles that happened on the Greek mainland occurred around 490 and 480 BC, and Aeschylus fought in both of those conflicts. So in 490, he and one of his brothers served in the Battle of Marathon, which is a very cool piece of history. Uh, it was just, it was a surprising and decisive victory for the Greeks, uh, really a monumental kind of defining moment in their history. And the Greek historian Herodotus wrote that only 192 Greek soldiers died in the fight, compared to upwards of 6,000 Persians. Now, admittedly, Herodotus is not always strictly reliable, but there aren't really any other ancient historians to compare his account to, so his numbers are basically all we have to go on. Anyway, he says only 192 Athenians died at Marathon. Now, sadly, Aeschylus's brother was one of those men, but of course, Aeschylus survived. And uh, the Greek victory at Marathon kept Persia at bay for 10 years, but in 480, the Persian throne had passed from King Darius to his son, King Xerxes, and Xerxes decided to finish what his father started, and he invaded Greece from the northeast. 
So Aeschylus served again in 480 BC through the summer of 479 BC in some major battles that were again surprise Greek victories against the much larger Persian army. Uh, Despite Xerxes' best efforts, the Persians were again driven out of Greece with their mission unfulfilled. So Aeschylus was personally involved in those battles, and interestingly, his gravestone, rather than praising his writing, actually praises his military service. The inscription says that Marathon and the Persians can attest to his good reputation. Uh, So I guess that gives us a little glimpse into what the Greeks valued and what they saw as most important about themselves, at least at that moment in history. Um, Aeschylus died right about the time the Persian Wars were drawing to an end, in about 455 BC. By now, of course, in the 21st century, Aeschylus is far better known for his plays than for his military prowess. But it's worth noting that his service in battle actually found its way into some of his writing. Um, For instance, his play called The Persians, which was first performed in 472 BC, features the Battle of Salamis from 480 BC, in which Aeschylus himself fought. And it wasn't very common at the time for plays to depict current events. Most plays, including most of Aeschylus's other plays, explored much older history or ancient myths. So this one, the Persians, was a bit out of the ordinary. But, you know, Aeschylus really had the right uh, and the opportunity to be a bit out of the ordinary if he wanted to. He is often considered to be the father of tragedy, uh, the father of tragic drama, because while poets were writing tragedies before Aeschylus, he was really the one who broadened its scope uh, and experimented and, and helped define what tragic drama would look like in the ancient world. Basically, the writing of only three ancient Greek playwrights has survived through the centuries, or at least of tragedians. And Aeschylus was the first of those three. The tragedians Sophocles and Euripides were younger than Aeschylus. They were born in about 496 and 480 BC, respectively. And they further developed the structure and style of tragic drama. But Aeschylus did kind of the groundbreaking foundational work. So let me quickly share a little bit about the culture of ancient Greece with regard to tragic theater. Of course, the Greeks were poets from way back, but tragedy specifically as an art form, we really don't know quite how it originated. But at some point in time, the Greeks thought up the idea to stage a tragic story, not just recite it as a poem, but have an actor portray a character as a performance, a character telling their story. Now, originally, tragedies just had one actor and a chorus, which was a group of people who uh, maybe sang or danced and who spoke lines in unison that uh, explained what was going on in the tragedy. Now, this was tragedy in the 6th century BC. In the 5th century, Aeschylus started writing and started expanding the potential of tragic drama. For instance, he introduced a second actor, 
So instead of one character telling their story, you could have two characters dramatizing a story through dialogue and conflict. Uh, Later, Sophocles would stretch those bounds even more by incorporating a third actor into his dramas. And Aeschylus seemed to think that was a good idea because in his later tragedies, he uses a third actor as well. So this was the time when these writers were uh, figuring out what the possibilities were with theater. And even though, you know, many of the details, like the number of characters, have changed since the 400s BC, these playwrights did establish many of the standards by which we still judge tragic drama. Uh, They established what kinds of stories could be told well in the setting of theater, and what kinds of characters belong in tragedies, and what kinds of choices characters make in tragedies that lead to their downfall. Um, Those are the types of principles that Aeschylus, along with Sophocles and Euripides, created through their writing. Now, Aeschylus, we believe, also invented the tragic trilogy. Now, this isn't necessarily something we still see today, at least not in theater, but the power of a set of three stories that work together to tell one big story, that is certainly something that has not faded over time. Um, As we've seen throughout this whole year on the podcast, the trilogy is an interesting literary structure, and it allows a writer to explore a story that is so big and complex, it really has at least three sub-stories within it. A trilogy um, does something pretty massive and elaborate, but in a clear and structured way. So Aeschylus, as far as we know, was the first to use the structure of a trilogy with tragic drama. And the Oresteia is actually the only tragic trilogy that has survived intact from ancient Greece. We know that many other dramatic trilogies were written and staged, uh, many by Aeschylus himself, and we have portions of some of them, but none have remained in full except the Oresteia. So that's another reason the Oresteia is a a key piece of ancient literature, because it's the only example we have of this particular genre from the Hellenistic world. Now, one more note about the culture of Greece with regard to theater. Um, However ancient tragedy may have originally developed, by the time of Aeschylus, it was closely connected with a yearly festival that took place in Athens called the Dionysia. This was one of the biggest, most important festivals that took place every spring in ancient Greece in honor of the Greek god Dionysius, and one of the central events of the Dionysia each year was a series of dramatic performances. It was actually a contest between the leading playwrights of the era, who would each submit a trilogy of tragic dramas to be performed, and then judges would decide which trilogy was the best, and the winner would receive kudos. Aeschylus won first place in the Dionysia many times. Uh, he he kind of dominated that competition. Um, and then Sophocles dominated after Aeschylus. Sophocles won first place, I think, either 18 or 20 times. Although, <laughs> I'll just mention, uh, Aeschylus had a son and a nephew who became playwrights like him. 
and though neither of them are particularly famous now, two different years, Sophocles took second place in the Dionysia because first Aeschylus' son and later the nephew beat him to first place. So take that, Sophocles. But uh, I'm strained from my point. I apologize. So this is the context of ancient Greek tragedy um, and of Aeschylus' dramas in particular. He took an active role shaping the theater of his day, and he's not just a well-known name today because his works happened to survive when almost no one else's did. Rather, his works survived because they were so good and he was so respected. His plays were often restaged in the years after his death, um, and we have them, some of them, preserved intact only because he had such a high reputation in his own day as an extraordinary writer. He wrote likely between 70 and 90 plays in his lifetime, and we have the full text of six or seven of them, which honestly is pretty amazing considering that he lived two and a half millennia ago. Uh, the reason the number we have is six or seven is that not all scholars agree the seventh was actually written by Aeschylus. Some sources suggest that it is, but uh, we just don't know for sure. It might be by a different playwright. Uh, the six, however, that we do know were written by Aeschylus all won first place at different times in the Dionysia festival. Uh, we know the first time Aeschylus won the Dionysia was in 484 BC, when he was around 40, um, although that play or set of plays has not survived. Uh, but we have three of his winning plays from the 470s and 60s BC, each of which was, we assume, originally part of a trilogy of plays, since that's how they were performed at the Dionysia, uh, but we only have one from each of those sets. So as you can probably see more and more, the fact that we do have the entire Oresteia is pretty incredible. We're very fortunate to have this trilogy to give us our one and only window into what a dramatic trilogy looked like in the ancient world. So, that is quite enough context. Let's dive in. The Oresteia was one of Aeschylus's final works. It won at the Dionysia in 458 BC, and Aeschylus died just a couple years later. So, at least of the material we have, this is Aeschylus's most mature, most complex tragedy. Like many ancient dramas, the Oresteia is based on Greek mythology. Uh, well, history slash mythology. It's tricky to extract history from myth in the ancient world. But the Oresteia draws uh, specifically from the many interconnected myths about the house of Atreus. This is sort of a dynasty that shows up in a lot of ancient Greek stories. Atreus was, according to myth, a great-grandson of the god Zeus, and there are a lot of stories revolving around Atreus's father and grandfather, Tantalus, as well as uh, about Atreus and his descendants. Uh, there was a lot of just brutal conflict and treachery between Atreus and his brother Thyestes, and it ended with Thyestes placing a curse on Atreus and his whole house. And Aeschylus 
portrays some of the effects of that curse in the Oristia, which centers on Atreus's son Agamemnon and his family. The first play in the trilogy, of course, is titled Agamemnon, and that is the story we'll be focusing on for the remainder of this episode. So the name Agamemnon may ring a bell because he was one of the chiefs among the Greeks in the Trojan War, as recounted by Homer and other poets. Agamemnon and his brother Menelaus, another son of Atreus, were the kings of Argos and Sparta. And when the Trojan prince Paris abducted Menelaus's wife, Helen, the two brothers declared war on Troy and left their homeland for 10 years to besiege Troy. They finally won the war. Uh, Menelaus got his wife back and all the Greeks sailed back home. But after 10 years, not all of them got a very warm welcome back home. Odysseus, for instance, as recounted in the Odyssey, found his house overrun by men who were trying to court his wife, Penelope, and Odysseus had to drive them all out in a bloody battle to secure his home again. And several of the other Greek leaders have complicated and sometimes tragic homecoming stories, but probably no homecoming was messier than Agamemnon's which of course makes his homecoming the perfect subject matter for a trilogy of tragedies. So the first of the three plays, Agamemnon, opens with a watchman, whose job is to stand guard looking out over the sea, waiting for a signal in the distance to tell, hopefully, of the Greeks' victory against the Trojans. And this has been his job for months and months. He waits and watches waits and watches, and in the first scene of the play, he finally sees a light in the far distance, a beacon light, and he knows that that means Agamemnon's forces have won against Troy. So the news is in. Agamemnon will be coming home in the near future. And Agamemnon's wife, Clytemnestra, who is one of the play's main characters, uh, gives this long speech about how sad she's been for 10 years while Agamemnon was away, and how exciting it is that he's coming home at last. Well, uh, meanwhile, we start to learn in bits and pieces that things might not be quite as warm and fuzzy as they sound. First, we learn that while Agamemnon was away from home, he made a human sacrifice to try to appease the goddess Artemis, who was preventing his ships from sailing. And the human he sacrificed was his and Clytemnestra's daughter, Iphigenia. And Clytemnestra had no say in that decision, and she may not have forgiven Agamemnon yet for his choice. And although her speeches are effusive about uh, what a faithful wife she is and how good it will be to have her husband home again, from other characters, we get little hints that maybe all is not well in Agamemnon's home. We're reminded, for instance, of Helen's faithlessness to Agamemnon's brother, Menelaus, and we're reminded that Clytemnestra is actually Helen's sister. We're also reminded of the curse on the house of Atreus, and the dreadful things that Agamemnon's father did long ago that have never been avenged. 
In other words, Aeschylus subtly but persistently points toward the probability of tragedy awaiting Agamemnon upon his homecoming. And tragedy is exactly what unfolds, of course. The long and short of it is, um, Agamemnon arrives back home with, uh, and this is important, with a concubine named Cassandra, a war prize from Troy. And even when he shows up with Cassandra, his wife is still all praise and flattery and subservience when she greets him. But after Clytemnestra takes her husband inside the house, Cassandra is left outside, and she suddenly launches into this uh, half-crazed prophesying. She was actually a prophetess in Troy, but the god Apollo cursed her with the fate of being always correct, but never believed by anyone who hears her prophecies. And what she uselessly foretells is Agamemnon's imminent death, followed by her own death. And almost immediately, we discover that Clytemnestra has murdered her husband inside the house. And shortly after, she kills Cassandra as well. And the play ends with her gloating in her crime without remorse, feeling that vengeance was accomplished. She hated Agamemnon for killing their daughter, Iphigenia, and also, while he was away for 10 years, she had an affair with her husband's cousin, actually, a man named Aegisthus, who had a vendetta of his own against Agamemnon. And so the two of them together plotted their revenge against Agamemnon, and now all has gone perfectly to plan. Clytemnestra's husband is dead, and she and Aegisthus together will now govern Argos in Agamemnon's place. So that is where the first play ends. But, of course, there is a lot more to the story. Uh, murder is not a good way to avenge murder, uh, because then someone has to avenge that second murder, and it can become an endless cycle, especially when your family has a curse on it anyway. So, in the second play, we will meet the character who actually gets the whole trilogy named after him, Orestes who is the son of Agamemnon and Clytemnestra, but was not present for the first part of the story. So next time we will meet Orestes, as well as his sister Electra, and we will take a look at the second tragedy in this trilogy, titled The Libation Bearers. So I hope you'll join me again in two weeks for that next episode. Thank you again for listening today, and I hope you've enjoyed this short introduction to Aeschylus and Greek tragedy. As always, I am your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wayne Productions, and if you ever want to learn more about me and my work as a Christian playwright, you can visit my website, kittywayneproductions.com. Thanks for being here, and I'll see you next time. Music